today we're going to talk about salvation. And oftentimes this comes up in Christian churches as it should. We want to concern ourselves with how do we get to heaven? How do we overcome sin? What does it mean to be a Christian? Every Christian is concerned about salvation. We preach salvation. We read about salvation in scripture. But here's the thing. In my spiritual journey, I've noticed that frankly, there are times when I'm a little more concerned about salvation's effect on me, the benefits that I get from being saved, than I am about God being glorified through my salvation. Can you relate? And in this respect, we might fall into the trap at times of reducing salvation down to its personal benefit to the individual. It sort of becomes a get out of jail free card. That's how we conceive of our salvation. And if that's the case, if salvation is just about me and it's not about glorifying God and it doesn't drive us to worship and to lift his name higher and higher, then we can fall, for example, into easy believism. You just, you just believe it, that's fine. It doesn't matter how you live. You can fall into that trap. We could fall into the trap of spiritual libertarianism. Well, I'm saved so I can do whatever I want. Or individualism. It's just about me, myself, and I. It's just that personal relationship with Jesus that frankly, I think we overemphasize in some of our churches to the point that people don't even, cons they don't even understand what it means to be part of a body of Christ. It's just about me, myself, and I, and Jesus on an island, hanging out, listening to tunes and praying and reading the Bible. Or we can even fall into licentiousness. This idea that, well, if I'm saved, then I can continue sinning because I got my ticket. I got my ticket to heaven. These are all falsehoods. Now, fortunately, God is glorified as sinners are saved. He is. And so we have the blessed hope of eternal life. But it's critical for us to, when we, when we delve into the doctrine of salvation, not just to be thinking about my salvation, but to be thinking about what does our salvation say about God and how does our salvation exalt and lift up God? Because again, the mission of God, sorry if you've been told otherwise, but the mission of God is actually the glory of God. It's not your salvation. It's the glory of God. You are saved and God is glorified through that, but God didn't create the world just because he wanted you to be saved. He created the world, allowed us to sin and saved us so that he might be glorified and others might give him the praise that he is due. So a good solid vertical understanding of salvation drives us into worship. So sometimes when you preach theology, people are like, okay, that I, I understand it, but who cares? Like, what's the practice? What am I supposed to do with this? It's just heady knowledge. No, understanding your salvation is meant to drive you into worship. It humbles you. It gets you on your knees at times in contrition before God. Other times you're just, your heart is overwhelmed with praise. You think differently about God. You have more of a sense of peace. That's what we want to do today. I need to do two sermons on this subject because there's a lot to be said. So our sermon series title is Heretics in the Battle for Orthodoxy. And we've dealt with theology proper and Christology and pneumatology and ecclesiology. Now we're starting 
a two-part series on soteriology, which is the formal theological language we use to describe the doctrine of salvation. It comes from the Greek word soteria, which is derived from the word soter, which simply means savior. So it's all about salvation. The Apostles' Creed has a statement about salvation. It's very simple. The forgiveness of sins. The Nicene Creed has a statement about salvation. I confess one baptism for the forgiveness of sins. Not baptism as the means of salvation, but baptism. And hear me clearly, if you've come out of a big Eva church, a big evangelical church, and you haven't been taught this, baptism is not something you do down the road once you get your act together. Baptism is inextricably linked to your profession of faith. It is not the means of justification, but it's unheard of in the New Testament for a Christian to profess faith in Christ and then wait several years to be baptized. Baptism is like, I've trusted in Christ. I'm gonna declare it. I get baptized. It's a profession and declaration and public, public acknowledgement of one's faith. Now, Having introduced you to the Apostles' Creed, the Nicene Creed, I want to make a, um, a preliminary statement so you understand my mindset, because when, when we're interpreting the Bible, we cannot divorce it from our own personality and our own understanding of Scripture. So I believe in the authority of Scripture. I do. I believe in the authority of Scripture. I believe the Scripture is inspired by God. It's infallible, meaning it's indestructible. It is God's authoritative word. And as I read scripture, I see big themes in scripture. So for example, one of the things I see in the meta-narrative of scripture, the big narrative of scripture, one of the themes that's woven through the Bible from the, the first verse, in the beginning, God. In the end, don't mess with my book. Don't take any words from it. Throughout the scripture from beginning to end, I see a sovereign God, a God who is absolutely sovereign. So whenever I'm interpreting scripture, reading scripture, I'm thinking God is sovereign, God is sovereign, God is sovereign. And if I'm interpreting scripture and it seems like God isn't sovereign, I start feeling uncomfortable. So throughout all of scripture, I think it's accurate to assume that God is sovereign. When I read about salvation then, full disclosure, I think of my salvation, I'll have the sovereignty of God, not the free will of man. I don't believe in free will. That's a word from, theo from philosophy. It's not in the Bible. The Bible never speaks of free will. The Bible speaks of the bondage of the will. That you are not a free subject apart from Christ. You are in bondage to sin. It's, it's very dramatic. You are dead in your trespasses and sins, Ephesians 2. So that's a word from philosophy that people have tried to import upon the scripture. But I dare you, I did this with a bunch of Bible college students years ago. I gave them all concordances and I said, okay, we're gonna do a, we're gonna do a, 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 a study on free will. So get into your concordances and look up all the, all the um, usages of the word free will. And they're, they're fumbling away and they're like, Dr. Rock, we can't find it. Like, that's the point. Now there's free will offerings. That's those two words being used in a different sense for a person that's a believer that chooses to offer things up to the Lord. But the point is, is free will is not in the scripture. You're more likely to find a unicorn in the Bible than that concept. 
So I believe in the absolute sovereignty of God over all of life. I gravitate to scriptures, full disclosure, like Isaiah chapter six. Listen to this dramatic declaration of God's sovereignty. Isaiah says, and I, I called and called to one another, this is the angels, and called to one another and said, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called. And the house was filled with smoke. And I said, woe to me. So he sees this grand view of God's holiness. What is his personal reaction? Is it, well, I'm, I'm a pretty good person. You know, I'm morally neutral. I contribute a little bit to my salvation. No, he, he's overwhelmed with his own sinfulness and lostness. Woe to me for I am lost. For I am a man of unclean lips. It's like, Isaiah, you're a prophet. Like out of, if you were to be ranked in comparison to other people, you'd be a 10 out of 10. But he compares himself to God. And he says, woe to me, I'm a man of unclean lips. And I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. That's what I want for my life. I want God to be exalted higher and I want to be pushed down. So, when we're talking about salvation, I bristle at any discussion, discussion of salvation that reduces salvation down to an evacuation plan that merely benefits me, myself, and I. If God is not glorified in my life, that's a half gospel. Or it's just a train ride into the sunset. Or, whoo, thank God I dodged that bullet and I'm not going to hell. Those are reduced gospels. Our salvation, brothers and sisters, is about God. It's about God. I was not taught this when I was younger. The gospel I was presented to when I was younger was primarily about me avoiding hell. And I had to shift my thinking when I started reading scripture for myself and realize I'm saved. I've been delivered. But it's actually not about me. So the world doesn't revolve around me? <laughs> no, it revolves around God and Christ. So I wanna introduce you to some uncomfortable passages of scripture today. I've been, I've been a pastor for a long time, so I, I completely, I've been thinking to myself all week, I wonder how people are gonna to respond to this because I'm gonna introduce you to some very uncomfortable passages of scripture today. I suspect that next week we'll only be doing one service. All right. <laughs> But hopefully, hopefully, our willingness to address these subjects will at least indicate to you that we actually believe it when we say creatures don't apologize to other creatures for what the creator has said. That we actually believe in unapologetic preaching. That our goal is not numbers. I hope you understand that. It's going to make, it makes me uncomfortable because in my flesh, I still bring arrogance and pride and self-concern into my reading of scripture. I'm sure that's true. But as we deal with these issues, what I would just ask for you to do is to think about them and mull them over. We don't have to cross every T and dot every I today. I suspect I may raise more questions than I give answers. But at least consider what God has said. And I wanna be as strictly biblical as I can. I'm not gonna make stuff up. I wanna be strictly biblical 
to help us to understand what the scriptures actually teach about our salvation. So how about Ephesians 1? Do you like the book of Ephesians? Is it in God's word, yes or no? Okay, well, here's what God says. I didn't make this up. Here's what God says. As Paul prays and begins to introduce them to a lot of great doctrine in the first three chapters, he says in verse three of Ephesians 1, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Notice it starts off with a doxology. If you're gonna talk about salvation, but you're not gonna talk about God being blessed and honored, it's not a full gospel. So he grounds what he's about to say in God. Who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, which is true. How do we do that? Listen to this. We get a, a backroom interview with God. We get to go backstage. God, we've been blessed, we're saved, but tell us a little bit more about like, how did this all work? Before we came to faith in Christ, like, what did this look like? What were you doing behind the scenes? Tell us your plan. Tell us what you were thinking. Here's what he says. Even as he, he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. God had our salvation in mind before he said, he, he spoke anything into existence. It's an amazing thought. Before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before him. In love, notice love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ. It's like, why Lord? Why did you do that? Tell me, tell me more. Here's what we get. This is all we get. According to the purpose of his will. But tell me more. That's all you need to know. According to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace. So we're supposed to erupt in worship as a result of that, not pick fights. With which he blessed us in the beloved, in him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished on us in all wisdom and insight. Notice Paul is just finding a great deal of joy here as he describes the blessings, the blessings, the blessings that flow from the gift of salvation, making known to us uh, the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ, as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and on earth. Now that's a bit of an eschatological statement, meaning it's not yet fully now, but the, the trajectory of history is that every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord of the glory of God the Father. And he will have his reward. All things will be reunited and united under Christ. So this is the trajectory of our salvation. And so while we benefit and we are blessed, we are told that God is the initiator and the first recipient of all the blessings that flow from our conversions. He's the first recipient of the blessings that flow from our conversions. So we've taught on this before, the center of God's redemptive work is Christ. So when we talk about Christ and salvation, we talk about a vicarious, substitutionary atonement. When we talk about vicarious, a vicarious atonement, we mean that he died in the place of. Vicarious means on behalf of or in the place of. You'll recall, hopefully Isaiah 53, where it talks about the suffering servant, the Messiah, 
who is put to death for us. Romans chapter five, verses six to eight is also speaking to that point. Substitutionary means that it's in our place. So on our behalf, uh, in our, in our uh, or, or in place of and on our behalf, you could write down Luke twenty two nineteen or 2 Corinthians 5, 21. That I, the, the notion is, is that I can't die for my own sins. I don't have the capability of doing so. I can't work them off, run them off, baptize them off, good works them off, tithe them off. I can't correct my own sinfulness, but Christ dies in my place. And atonement means that he covered as a sacrifice for sins. He covered my sins in his own body on the tree. Romans 3.25 teaches that. So we believe in the doctrine of propitiation, meaning that the sacrifice of Christ satisfied God's wrath and holiness and so met the righteous requirements of God that the sinner, the sinner is enabled to be reconciled to God. So what is, what is the baseline of our salvation? It's the grace of God. We talk about grace a lot. There's a famous song, Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound. It's so sweet because it's not grounded and founded in us. Christ died in our place on our behalf. So that's all just background stuff. We've already discussed that in other messages. We believe in the vicarious substitutionary penal atonement of Jesus Christ. If you're new, watch some of our sermons in the past and you'll understand that a little bit better. But what I wanna do now is I wanna, I wanna help us to understand. So Christ is a basis, Christ dies, Christ is the, 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 the atonement for our sin, but how does, how does the atonement of Christ get applied to us? And what does that look like? And what are the things that are taking place from before the foundations of the world up to the present and into the future? What, is the, what are the various elements or aspects of our salvation? As we look into scripture, we see there's lots of language that is given to us to help us to understand all the different aspects, if you will, of salvation. And what theologians often do is we try to order them up. And we call this the ordo salutis, the order of salvation. What, what We see all these words like election, predestination, calling, conversion, justification, sanctification, glorification. How, how does that all work? Like, where does this all fit in God's planning and purposes? Well, we know in scripture... We know in scripture, before we get right into that, that Christ died on the cross for our sins and is through that declaring to the world in, in the most general way that Jesus Christ is the way, the truth, and the life. We call this God's general call. So there is a general call that goes out to all men, all men, all men, all women, that says, God has issued a call for you and 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 you, whether you ever come to faith or not is not the point, but all of you have been called to surrender yourself in faith and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ to be saved. The Bible says in Matthew eleven twenty eight, come to me all you who labor and are heavy laden and I will give you rest. That's, the, that's why I'm very comfortable preaching to Anybody that will listen, if you want to get to heaven, if you want to be forgiven of your sins, if you want to truly be humbled, you need to repent and put your faith in Jesus Christ. That's God's general call. Okay, so we acknowledge that. 
But in scripture, we also have something called the effectual call. So the general call is the message that goes out to everybody. But I already told you, we're in bondage to sin. So our natural propensity is, no, I will not repent. I will not believe. I will not surrender. We're all spiritual punks. We're disinterested apart from God's grace. We're punks, we're brats. We're rebels without a cause. So God has to actually work in our lives to enable us to believe. For the general call to become effectual, God has to work. How do we know that? Well, we're taught that in Matthew 22, same gospel, verse 14. For many are called, general call, but few are chosen, effectual call. The call goes out to everyone so that the world is literally without excuse. But we do need God to work in a way that we cannot and are not willing to work for the spark to be ignited and for conversion to actually take place. The reason why a general call isn't enough is because by nature we resist God. Lest you doubt that, let me take you to Romans chapter three. I don't know of any other passage in the scripture that is clearer in terms of how rebellious we are against the gospel. Maybe you've read it. Romans chapter three, verses 10 to 12. It starts this way. None is righteous. Do you really mean none, Lord? Like when you say none, do you mean like no one or most people? He says, none is righteous. No, not one. So what kind of none are we referring to here? An absolute none. Encompasses everyone who's ever been born of Adam and Eve. None is righteous. No, not one. What is, how does that express itself? No one understands. Really? Like nobody? Nobody. Nobody understands. No one seeks for God. Have you ever been to a seeker-sensitive church? It's bad language. Now, if you're seeking seeks, you're trying to win seeks to Christ from seekism, you could call yourself a seeker-sensitive church. But it's a weird thought. We, we have these little lines that are put out, these little thoughts that are, that are put out that we, we assume, oh yeah, people are seeking God. No, they're not. People aren't seeking God. God seeks us. It says it right there. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they've become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Notice how many times he uses none, no one. Now, we, in our flesh, we can resist that. We're like, yeah, but I remember having an interest in spiritual things. I remember making a decision to walk to the front of the church and accept Christ. Okay, I get it. In the human realm, you were thinking, you were processing, you were making decisions. But what you need to know is behind the scenes, it was God enabling that. That's what you need to know. That's what you need to know. And this drives us into worship. So this explains the radical need for grace and mercy. But how does this take place? So let's talk about the ordo salutis, the order of salvation. When I say order, this is a little bit complex perhaps, 
But when I say order, I don't necessarily mean the linear order. I don't want us to think of this necessarily strictly as, okay, on this day, God did this, and then this day, he did this, and this day, he did this, and then an hour later, he did that, five seconds later, he did this. It's not necessarily a linear temporal order, but it's a logical order. So in space and time, some of these things are taking place simultaneously in the same moment, if you will, but we're, we're gonna sort of lay them out so we can understand what was God doing before we even showed up? What, what did God do when we were converted? What is God doing now? And what is God gonna do in the future? Let's begin with what we call the antecedent elements or aspects of our salvation. So the antecedent elements, we're gonna look at four of them today. They're all in the Bible. I didn't make any of these up. The antecedent aspects of salvation are the things God was doing before you were conceived. So we often think of salvation in the moment, but God was actually working in a way prior to your birth to ensure that you'd be saved, which is mind-boggling. It's mind-boggling. It's kind of like when, uh, when Nicodemus came to Jesus and he's having this conversation, like, what must I do to be saved? You must be born again. He's like, how can a man enter back into his mother's womb? Jesus is like, no, you have to be born again. To be born again, if you're born once, the first time, naturally, did you make that decision? Anybody here choose to be born? No, you were just born. Other people made that decision for you and there were various things that took place for that to happen. And there were people before them, generations back, that made other decisions right back. You didn't choose to be born the first time and you don't choose to be born the second time. But it would be interesting to have a conversation with your parents and say like, why did you decide to have kids? Or how did you get here? And how did your grandparents get here? And how did your great-grandparents get here? And what, what were the biological functions that were taking place that led to my conception? You could have those conversations and that they would be interesting conversations, but in, in none of that would you ever be able to say that you chose to be born. So when we talk about being born again in the same way, there's things that God was doing behind the scenes before you ever showed up in this planet. And, and we wanna understand those because the Bible speaks of those things. So what, what was taking place before the actual moment of conversion or point of being born again in my life? Well, I want to start by acknowledging that these subjects are controversial. I get it. They actually offend people. In fact, out of all the sermons I'll preach in this series, this is the one most likely to cause people to leave our church. I totally get it. I totally get it. But I would be remiss as a minister of the gospel if I sidestep the hard truths of scripture to appease and to appeal to other folks. Now, I also would acknowledge that you don't have to agree with me on every single point to be a member of our church. So we're not calling you a heretic if you don't square things up in the same way that I would. But I, I hope that the way I deliver this makes it crystal clear, I'm not making this stuff up. So we're going to deal with four aspects of of our salvation. And I'm gonna introduce you to four words. They're all in the scripture. The, they are difficult for us on a human level to understand, but they are in God's word. So the first one is foreknowledge. It's a biblical word, foreknowledge. 
we see this word or this concept in Acts 13.48. So in Acts 13.48, here's what the Bible says. And when the Gentiles heard this, this is when the godless heard the gospel, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. Okay, so we're all comfortable with that, I'm sure. Where it gets a little uncomfortable is there's a little statement here now that helps us to understand that God was actually orchestrating all this. So listen to the language of the text. And as many, as many, it's a quantity, as many as were appointed to eternal life, believed. See that? So it's like, hmm. So we're, we're looking out, we're seeing these conversions. And now we discover that behind the scenes, God had appointed them to eternal life. Well, wow, that's interesting. Is there anything else in scripture that helps us to understand that a little bit more? Yeah, there is. So if you head on over to Romans chapter eight, and we're going to be looking at verse 29, the scriptures say, for those whom he foreknew. So this is step one. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined. There's another uncomfortable word, but it's in the Bible. To be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brethren, um, many brothers. And then finally, I want to take you to 1 Peter Chapter 1, verses 1 to 2. First Peter chapter 1, verses 1 to 2. And those who were elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, Bithynia, so these are all provinces in the, in the um, ancient Near Eastern world, according to the foreknowledge of God, the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood. So what the Bible's teaching us here is that prior to the actual conversion of a man or woman, boy or girl, that God before that foreknew them and appointed them to eternal life. Now, when the Bible talks about foreknowledge, it's not just, oh yeah, I know that guy. It's an intimate kind of knowing. It's an intimate kind of knowing. The word implies intimacy of knowledge and an affirmation of that person that God has now set his sights on that person to affect salvation in their lives. God set his sights, if you're a believer today, on you before you were born. It's an amazing thing. Now, it raises a lot of questions about fairness and equality and human will and all these sorts of things. And we, we will seek to address these as, um, as we engage in a robust study of Scripture in, in uh, weeks and months and even years to come. Again, it raises a lot of questions. But when questions are raised in your mind about something you've read in Scripture— what you don't do is refuse to accept what God has read in scripture until you've answered all your questions. You accept the basis of it. And one thing we all must accept, this isn't 
a reform doctrine, uh, certain denominations doctrine. This is the Bible. So every Christian believes in foreknowledge or should believe in foreknowledge because the Bible teaches foreknowledge. Some people think that the way it works is God kind of looks through the tunnel of time and he sees, let's say, Aaron Rock, and he's like, well, under the right circumstances, Aaron will believe, so I'm gonna set my sights on him. That does violence to the whole of scripture. <laughs> it does violence to Romans 3, which we already read. Nobody seeks after God. So it can't mean that God looks down the tunnel of time and sees who would believe. It must mean that God sets his sights on us in advance of our physical creation so that he might orchestrate things toward our salvation. The second word, which has already cropped up in a previous text, is predestination. That shouldn't make us uncomfortable. Again, every Christian who believes in the authority of scripture has a doctrine of predestination. It's funny, because on occasion, I've had people come to our church from other churches, and they're like, hey, do you believe in election and predestination? Like, well, don't we all? I didn't make those words up. We may have different views on what they mean, but you can't say, do you believe in predestination and election? Every Christian believes in predestination and election because they're in the Bible. So let's talk about predestination. Predestination comes up in a couple key passages of the scripture. Of course, we see God picking Abraham in Genesis and working through Israel and excluding the Canaanites. So we see all that. So the whole of the Old Testament is a, a, a grand narrative of that being uh, fleshed out. But in, in this New Testament, in Romans chapter eight, verse 29, I'll just go back there. For those whom he foreknew, so that's step one, logically, not necessarily in a time sense. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the likeness of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many believers. And then in Ephesians chapter one, verse five, which I also have already read for you, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will. So sovereign choice is in view here. Predestined means to predetermine. That's what that means. It means to predetermine. So predestination and election are more alike than they are different. They're kind of almost synonyms. They overlap for the most part. But the scripture teaches us that while predestination is more of a, a broader sense in terms of God setting his sights on, let's say you for salvation, that election is the, the act that leads to the application of it to your specific personhood. So this is also a fascinating doctrine. And admittedly, it can, it can make us feel uncomfortable, especially if we've been taught that I just sort of woke up one day in a drunken, after a drunken stupor and decided, you know what? I think I'm gonna get into Jesus. It might seem like that because God works through preaching and personality and he causes our minds to work and he's bringing about events in our lives, people into our lives, cultural circumstances surround us. So in the here and now, it's like, yeah, I, I showed up, I listened, I processed, I read, I was doing all that sort of thing. People were preaching the gospel to me and I put my faith in Christ. Hey, right on, we affirm that. But behind the scenes, what you discover as you read scripture in more detail is God set his sights upon you before the first star was ever hung in the sky. Does that make us arrogant? No. 
Does it mean we no longer evangelize? No, we still have the great commission. God uses the instrumentality of his church to win the world. But we can never take credit for our salvation, ever. If we add the weight of a human cell in the form of good works to the finished work of Jesus Christ, if we take, try to take the most minute credit for our salvation, we have castrated the gospel of Jesus Christ, of its power. So this is a doctrine that we also must accept. And then that leads to the doctrine of election. And again, everybody believes in election if they believe in the authority of scripture. The question is, is it specific or is it more corporate? Well, let's think about this as we read Romans chapter nine, verses 11 through 16. So there it says, again, Romans chapter nine, verses 11 through 16. Though they were not yet born, this is an, inc- this is an incredibly uncomfortable passage of the Bible. Maybe one of the most uncomfortable, pa- uncomfortable passages of the Bible in the whole New Testament corpus of scripture. Here's, I'm just reading it for you, I didn't make this up. Though they were not yet born and had not done and had done nothing good or bad. So prior to expressing their sin, we're all born in sin, but prior to expressing their sin, why? In order that God's purpose of election might stand. Can you tell me more, Lord? No. Just like to the praise of his glory and grace in accordance with the purpose of his will in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls. She was told, this is about the birth of these twins, Jacob and Esau, the older will serve the younger. That's a little uncomfortable. But then it goes on to say, as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. Now, this could be a reference to their actions as adults, that Esau dishonored God and God hated his actions. But what we cannot miss in that process is that prior to their birth, God chose that Esau, who was the oldest, that in culture should have been the inheritor of his father's estate, was put underneath his brother Jacob So then, being a very human book at the same time, the writer says, what shall we say then? So they're asking 2,000 years ago the exact same questions that I know are on your minds right now. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? How many of you are thinking that? Is God unjust? Like, why why would he set his sights on one and not the other? Why not both? Why not fairsy squaresy? Right? That's what we're thinking. Like, give me an answer, Lord. By no means. For he says to Moses, it's like, okay, this is, this is his answer to you. I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. It's still kind of uncomfortable, but that's all you get. In other words, why Lord? Well, because I'm God, I'll do what I want. So this goes back to that meta-narrative, God is sovereign. And until you get to a point where you are comfortable with the sovereignty of God, you will never be comfortable with God. God is absolutely sovereign. His ways are not our ways. God has a plan and purpose and our little 
meager minds, it's hard for us to wrap our mind around why God does some of the things he does. And we ask the question, why Lord? Why did you set your sights on Jacob and Esau before they were born? Why did you orchestrate things that way? And then he goes on to say, so that it depends not on human will. Oh, I thought we had a free will. I thought I just woke up one day and chose God. Not according to the Bible, maybe according to philosophy, maybe according to Aristotle or Plato, but not according to the Bible. It doesn't depend on human will or exertion, meaning work, but on God who has mercy. Let me say that again. What is the basis of our salvation? Is it my works? No, we're not Roman Catholics. It's not our works. Oh, it's our will. Oh yeah, we're comfortable with that. No, it's not that either. It's neither your will nor your works. What is it then? God and his mercy. Mercy, by the way, by definition is undeserved. So if mercy is earned or owed, it's not mercy. It's something else. But mercy is undeserved. That's what makes it mercy. So how many people deserve salvation? Zero. Jacob didn't deserve it. I mean, his actions <laughs> prove that. I don't deserve it. You don't deserve it. We don't deserve it. If there's even a smidgen of arrogance in you because God has saved you, you need to repent of that. It's all about God. Now, some Christians try to excuse the way around this text by saying, no, this is a reference to collective election. So Jacob represents Israel. Esau represents the godless. And what the text is trying to say is God as a whole kind of selected the, the nation of Israel who came out of Jacob. And the way a friend of mine illustrated it this week, it's kind of like a train's going by. So God's put the train in the tracks and the train is going by. And then there's the train. You have an opportunity to jump on or jump off. It's like, well, that, that explains it because they're very uncomfortable with the idea of individual election. So it's just, it's a little more, it's a little more easy to swallow if we make it corporate election. Well, a corporate body is composed of individuals. So you still don't solve the problem. A corporate body, so well, you just save the nation. Well, the nation is composed of individuals. So you're still back to the same problem. It, it, might, it might be a softer blow, but either way, either way, your salvation, whether it came to you by a direct individual act of God upon your life or a direct act of God upon a group of which you are a part is still of God. You see that? It's still based upon the mercy of God. It is literally without conditions. That's mercy. It's without conditions. It's without consideration for a person's contribution. That's what it means when it talks about exertion. It's without consideration for your goodness. It's without consideration for your works. It's without consideration for your righteousness. And it mustn't, mustn't make us selective in our evangelism. And it mustn't, mustn't make us arrogant. But it should make us grateful. It should make us grateful. And if we're grateful, it should make us worshipful. 
You see? So good theology has real life application. So we have general call leading to an effectual call in space and time. But prior to all of that, prior to all of that, we see God orchestrating our salvation. Before I was even born, this was all taking place. And then there is in space and time, a call. So the call of God is God's special work with his elect, with those that were appointed to eternal life, which is what Acts says, was those that were elected or predestined, whereby he enables the unregenerate, the lost person, in other words, to respond with repentance and faith and makes it certain that they will. This is the effect of God's call. Where in space and time, he takes the vicarious substitutionary sacrificial work of Christ in light of the fact that he foreknew us, predestined us and elected us. Here we are. The first tangible effect of his antecedent efforts before you even showed up is the call, the effectual call of God. Again, let me say it. It's the special work of God whereby those that he has elected, he enables to be regenerated, meaning that they have the capacity now to respond in repentance and faith. And he makes it certain that they will. Where do we see that in scripture? Romans 8 again. Romans 8, here's what it says. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. Most Christians know that verse and love to quote it. It's, it's, it's like one of those Sunday school verses. All things work together for the good, right? Which is sometimes misapplied, but it's, it's there for those who are called according to his purpose, but read two verses down in Romans 8.30. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified, which is not yet. That's gonna come down the road. But we see this plan that when God set his sights upon you, he will have his reward. Christ will have his reward in your life. If he sets his sights on you, he will have his reward. If he sets his sights on you, he will have his reward. And for those of you that are saved, he has had his reward because you have been bought, purchased by the precious blood of the Lord Jesus Christ because God set his sights upon you. So the call goes out to all so that all men are without excuse. The heavens declare the glory of God. All men are without excuse. Folks, we're not neutral. We're not sort of nice, sort of bad. We're not born perfect like Islam teaches. We're not born lame and sick like false forms of Christianity teach. We are born dead in our trespasses and sins. And without God working to revive us, like corpses don't administer CPR on themselves. It's impossible. If, you're, if your leg's cut open, you're by yourself, you're on a battlefield, maybe you got some stitches, maybe you could fix the wound for yourself. 
Maybe you could splint your own arm if you're just ill or sick or injured, but corpses don't administer CPR. Never in human history has a corpse administered CPR on itself. Let's get out the paddles. It doesn't work that way. Now, if you don't believe that you are literally dead in your trespasses and sins, then you will buy into various explanations for the things we've talked about today to somehow give yourself a little bit of credit back for your salvation process. But the Bible just, it keeps slamming the doors. It's like going through a maze, dead end, dead end, dead end. I I think I have an explanation to get around this. It's a dead end again. Uh, I guess there is just one way, one truth and one life. And I guess God is the sole source and initiator of that. And when you accept that, it, it, it accelerates your worship life, or at least it should. I, I have met a few folks over the years that have come to understand these doctrines and then become incredibly arrogant, incredibly arrogant, or who stop evangelizing, or who look down on other people, or who only preach this stuff. Every single week, it's the same sermon recycled. It's like they fixate on it. That's not me. I don't do that. But it is important for us to understand that God is the one that is working behind the scenes. And when he does, and as he does, we are blessed and he is honored through that. And this increases our worship. So brothers and sisters, these doctrines will will offend us. They will offend us when we are not yet fully sanctified. They will make us uncomfortable. Paul acknowledges that in his record of the responses that people would have to it in Romans chapter eight. But what's beautiful about these doctrines is that they help us to resist the temptation to take even a smidgen of credit for our salvation and just thank God exclusively, wholly, entirely for the work that he has done in our lives. And that's a good thing.